0: recovery elevator episode 261
1: yeah as long as i'm always teachable then i feel like i'm safe it's the moment that i turn around and say no no i've got this um that i actually need to be more worried
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul churchill thank you so much for joining us On today's podcast, we have Sophie. She's 30 years old. She took her last drink five and a half years ago, and she's from London, England. She talks about how she has an addictive personality and applied this with all aspects of her life, such as with work, food, exercise, and alcohol. It's a fantastic interview. You guys, I know, are going to love it. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Café RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. You guys don't forget on the recoveryelevator.com homepage, there's a link to a free five-day video course. You're going to get a video from me directly fed to your inbox each morning with all the tips, strategies, and techniques that I used to ditch the booze. Again, go to recoveryelevator.com on the front page. You can see a link, enter your email address. You're going to get five free videos, had great feedback on it. You can do this. Okay, let's get started. I'm not a big fan of using tough love when it comes to helping people ditch the booze or any addiction of sorts. Not everyone responds the same to it. And as you can see, on the extreme side of things, when governments and institutions try to tough love addiction out of people with jail sentences and prison terms, it simply doesn't work. Doctors will often tell patients with tough love, look, if you drink again, you're going to have some major health repercussions. And unfortunately, that usually doesn't work and people drink again tough love for the most part is a waste of time for the most part but in this episode we're gonna go there a little bit and occasionally we need to be called out on our bs and i don't want to call it lies because when we're drinking we're wearing jumbo opaque glasses when we're caught in the shitstorm of our addiction and we can't see clearly So this is why it's important to get a second opinion. And that's exactly what I'm gonna give today. A second opinion with a little tough love sprinkled in as well. Can you handle it guys? I think you can and I think you're ready. So there's a certain email that I get time and time again and here's the gist of it. Hey Paul, I wanna quit drinking so badly. And then they include a list of why they need to quit drinking. I'm sick of letting myself down. My partner down. I'm on thin ice at work. My car insurance is getting out of control. I'm spending way too much money on alcohol. The shame and guilt is unbearable. The anxiety after drinking is the worst. I just got a DUI. I hate myself. This depression is killing me. I don't think I can take it anymore. I just ruined an eight-day all-inclusive vacation with my family in Cabo. My 16-year-old daughter told me I disgust her. I'm not reaching anywhere close to my full potential in life. I've gained so much weight. I just lost my job. I failed at a grad school. My workouts are garbage. I constantly feel like shit. My cat hates me and I have gout. Yep, those are all true. I've heard it all. And they are all valid reasons to quit drinking. Seriously, the pain points are jumping off the screen in the emails. And my heart goes out to all of you, every single one of you, because I've been there. I know what it feels like. The pain and suffering is real. It's intense. And then, this is what usually happens next in the email. It goes like this, Paul, I want to quit drinking so badly. I've tried everything. I don't know what else to do, but I can't do AA because I'm not on board with a god part of the program. Or I don't want to go to AA or a smart meeting because I don't want anyone to see me there. I definitely don't want to get a sponsor and sure as hell don't want to do any steps. Paul, I want to quit drinking, but I can't be open about my struggles with alcohol due to my profession. I want to quit drinking so bad, but I don't want to tell my best friends. I want to quit drinking more than anything, Paul, but I don't know how my close group of friends will respond. Paul, I'm done with the booze. But I don't know if I'll be able to have fun without it. I want to quit drinking, but I want to keep working as a bartender. Yep, that was a true one. I want to find a group of friends who don't drink, but I don't want to join a sober group or tell anyone about my drinking problem. I want to quit drinking so I can lose weight, but the gals I work out with always go out to drinks after the gym. After reading these emails, I'm often legitimately confused. I go, does this person want to quit drinking or not? And if you can't convince me in an email, at the conscious and unconscious level, you're definitely not convincing yourself. So here goes. Here's some tough love. I'm calling bullshit on you really wanting to quit drinking. You haven't convinced me, but you have laid out several reasons why you want to continue drinking. In fact, You've laid out several self-imposed roadblocks of why you won't be quitting drinking or don't even want to quit drinking, mostly with excuses that don't make any sense. I can't go to an AA meeting or join an online support group because of my profession? First off, do you think human resources departments even have the resources to dedicate a person to drive around town to all the AA meetings that take place at all different hours of the day to see if one of their employees is in attendance, or are they signing up for Cafe RE, checking the member listing with their employee database? No, this isn't happening. With the profession thing, I've met people in all professions, doctor, lawyers, politicians, etc who have joined Cafe RE, attend a regularly, and the noise the mind creates never happens. Here's a couple more. I wanna quit drinking, but, I don't like to meditate I don't want to work any steps I don't want to do 6 a.m. yoga classes let me summarize I want to quit drinking but I don't want to do any of the work take any action get uncomfortable or make any significant change in my life listeners I don't have all the answers but I can tell you this isn't how it works how it does work is you're going to have to do things you don't wanna do. Okay, so a couple things are taking place when we're not clear in what we really want. And in this scenario, you're doing a number on your psyche with this wishy-washy intention of what I want, but what I don't want at the same time. You're not convincing anyone you wanna quit drinking, especially yourself. You're creating a splintering in the mind, One statement says, I want to quit drinking, and immediately after that, you mention why you can't. This compassionate universe wants to line up with your goals in life, but when you say one thing and then contradict it directly afterward, the universe is like, okay, Melissa, please get back to me when you do know what you want. It's like finding a genie's lamp, and with your three wishes, you say, okay, first wish, I want to quit drinking. The genie is like, okay, your wish is my command. What's your second wish? You go, hmm, well, my second wish is, I want to keep on drinking. The genie is like, uh, okay, well, your second wish is my command. What's your third wish? And you're like, oh, wait, I want to quit drinking. No, but I want to stop drinking. How about uh, my third wish is, I, I, I just want to drink a little bit or, or moderately drink. The genie goes, okay, your third wish is my command, and I usually don't give feedback on your wishes, but you completely wasted two wishes. So you're right back where you started. So more tough love, ask yourself, maybe while looking at yourself in the mirror, do you want to quit drinking? Ask it again, do you really want to quit drinking? And then ask, more importantly, what are you willing to do? Or change in your life to make this goal a reality. Are you serious when you say you'll do anything? I've heard that before in emails and then directly after they tell me what they aren't willing to do. I'm serious. I almost want to send them back a highlighted version of their own email. Once you are clear with your decision to quit drinking without internal divides, as the Buddha calls it, you have crossed over to the other shore. Then It's all just minor details after that. And before we hear from Sophie, let's hear from BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I'm going through a lot of change at this moment in my life right now, and I personally will be speaking with somebody at BetterHelp for assistance in this process. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help it is professional counseling done securely online there's a broad range of expertise and better helps counselor network which may not be locally available in many areas the service is available for clients worldwide you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor you'll get timely and thoughtful responses plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Recovery Elevator listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. Sophie, how are you?
1: I'm fantastic, thank you. i um, enjoying the sunny weather here. It's a bit hot, but it's a really good day.
0: Yeah, it is hot in Thailand, Sophie. Have you gotten used to the humidity? Because it's taken me a couple days to get used to this.
1: No, I've, I've been on the road for about 10 months in Asia, and I'm just getting used to being damp. I'm not acclimatizing whatsoever.
0: Yeah, well, Sophie, let's get right into this. When was your last drink?
1: My last drink was on April the 28th, 2014. So that was about five and a half years ago.
0: Wow. Five and a half years ago. How does it feel to be five and a half years away from alcohol?
1: Honestly, totally surreal. Um, I still completely feel like a newcomer, but that's also a really good thing.
0: When you say a good thing to feel like a newcomer, I can imagine it's because you're always learning new things. There's always new light bulb moments. There's always new plateaus you're on. You think, oh, I got it figured out. And, you, and then you recognize there's more work to be done or more areas
1: of of growth to go down is, is that what you're talking about that's exactly what i meant yeah as long as i'm always teachable then i feel like i'm safe it's the moment that i turn around and say no no i've got this um that i actually need to be more worried and
0: listeners at a minute and 40 seconds into this interview sophie drops a huge value bomb which she covers the three most dangerous words somebody can say on this journey is i got this referring to i've got everything figured out I love how you said that because when I used to say to myself, you know what, I feel like I've learned everything, I'm good to go, and then it was immediately followed by field research. So I'm excited to learn more about how that looks like for you and to share your story with the audience. But so hopefully give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun?
1: Gosh, there's a lot of things to remember there. So I am 30 years old. I am from the UK, London i come from a pretty big family i've got four older sisters all scattered about england for fun uh, i found a lot of relief through exercise i think i like to also just hang out a lot in nature and tend to just plug myself into a podcast get lost for a few hours wander off and wander back and by the time i've done all that i feel pretty peaceful
0: and sophie before we get more into your story Talk to us about how exercise, and you mentioned you like you get relief in nature, how that's been vital on this journey away from alcohol.
1: You know what, in all honesty, I think I clung to exercise when I first got sober. I'm sure you've heard of the analogy of having like four bins, but only three bin lids. So when I put down alcohol, I really picked up exercise. You may say to an unhealthy extent, um, and over the years it's been gradually tapering that. But really... For some people, they really enjoy meditating and getting calm. When I feel anxious, or I need something I need to work out, I hit the gym, I need to sweat it out, I like to get the endorphins. And I found it can also be a really good bonding experience with other people. Um, and I didn't even realize I liked exercising with other people until, oh gosh, about three years ago, and someone wanted to run with me, and I was like, oh no, don't, <laughs> don't ruin my space. And then they came along and yeah, it was just really satisfying. So now I tend to do a lot more classes and it's a really good way to actually meet new people as well uh, who have other interests than drinking.
0: And listeners, if you have heard several episodes of the Recovery Elevator podcast, you might have already noticed or recognized that something about this interview sounds a little different. I was telling Sophie I've done 261 episodes, actually a little bit more than that, but only about four or five of them have been face to face. We've got one microphone. I'm asking Sophie the question. She is an intern here at Hope Rehab in Thailand and I heard snippets of her story and I said, I gotta get her on the podcast to share her story, also share her experience of what it's like to be an intern here at Hope Rehab and, and share some of the things that she's learned about what it's like to go to treatment in a different country. Um, with the clients here learning the, uh, the modalities the treatments that they use here and everything but first let's hear more about your story Sophie talk to us about your drinking when did you first realize that alcohol was a problem did you attempt to moderate were there any rock-bottom moments and get us up to speed
1: well I would say that throughout my life I've had quite an addictive personality whether that was with work or with food or with exercise but as far as alcohol is concerned I think I really not noticed things taking a turn when I was about 14 or 15. I don't know if anyone has experience with going out in London about 10, or 15 years ago, but they weren't very hot on using IDs. So as long as I was with my older sisters, I could get in anywhere I wanted to, but I was actually at a boarding school. So all my drinking was limited to weekends. So it's pretty safe, but the wheels came off when I went to university And I, to this day, maintain that freshers' year was the best year of my life um, because I met people that wanted to drink like me. We went out every night and then on Sunday we'd have a night off and we went down to the college bar. The problem really came to light, I think, in second year when everyone else got a bit more sensible, started studying a bit harder and I didn't limit the amount I drank. I carried on uh, having the pre-lash, the lash, the post-lash... And when everyone else wants to have a night off, I would find my hostages and go out. And I never I never actually finished university because my family realized there was a problem at the age of 21 and put me in my first rehab. And the long story short is it then began a revolving door of just going to rehab, relapse, rehab, relapse uh, for about four years until I got recovery.
0: And Sophie, could we dive a little bit deeper when you were age 21, when the wheels came off, um, when did you first recognize that alcohol wasn't working in your life? And, and did you try to put any rules to place like, look, I'm only drinking on this date um, or I'm only drinking this
1: type of alcohol? <laughs> the short answer to that is no. <laughs> Every time I got a little bit more freedom in my life, I noticed an increase in my drinking. I say I noticed. I didn't notice at all at the time. I never occurred to me to reflect back on it at all. The best way I can describe my drinking was absolutely kamikaze, which is strange because I'm just not that kind of girl. <laughs> I To all outside people looking in, I'm very respectful of authority figures. I like to play by the rules. I'd always got a great sense of affirmation by achieving and pleasing other people. And so this alcoholic out of control character that kept popping up was not just alarming people just didn't know what to do with it because it wasn't me it was quite literally a different personality
0: and you mentioned this alcoholic personality was there a time when there was the word alcoholic in sophie and you said no way there's not a chance or when you first were put in the first treatment center were you on board with that and you said okay this is something that i need to address And and how did you first come to grips with that? Because you're 21 when you went to the first rehab center and that that's young and Was there some pushback or were you ready to go from the start?
1: You know what I think As I mentioned, I was quite like a goody two-shoes. So Deep down, I knew something was wrong. I didn't like this behavior. I knew normal so-called normal people didn't do this, you know, I was secretly drinking in the toilets in between lectures. I was drinking pints of cider when I woke up, really by the end of second year. And whilst I never reflected on it for too long, I, I just knew it wasn't right. So when my family said, actually it was quite, it was quite a dramatic story. They, it was literally after my 21st birthday, um, one of my sisters was driving me back to Durham University and she turned around at a roundabout and she'd been on the phone to someone and I guessed it was my mum. And I was like, where are we going? Uni's that way. And she's like, you're not going to university you're going to rehab I, was like, oh. and I just sat in the back and i took it because that's what my older sister said i was doing um and as i said very very obedient to the bitter end but i don't think i understood what an alcoholic really was i don't think i understood that for quite a long time i was happy to call myself one because people told me that's what i was but understanding everything that, that would entail didn't come till a lot later
0: now listeners There's a common thread you've heard me say on this podcast, which is to focus on the similarities and not the differences. Now, there was a time on my journey where I would either walk into a meeting or hear a podcast episode, and I would shut down if it wasn't somebody named Paul who had a standard poodle named Ben who lived in Bozeman, Montana, because I had nothing in common with them. And so for all podcast episodes, including this one, I encourage everybody to focus on the similarities and not the differences. Now, Sophie mentioned she went to 13 treatment facilities. And... The treatment personally is not part of my story, but what I had to do there, what I did is I I, I, I I zeroed in on 13 times where I internally made the declaration to quit drinking, 13 times where I said I will never again drink, where I thought I had drawn a definitive line in the sand 13 times where things were going to be different, and it didn't happen that way. And so, Sophie, I want to ask you, what do you think it was after each treatment center that it didn't stick, but something eventually did stick. Was it, was it a defining moment? Or was it like after every treatment center, you learned something that you put in your tool bag or something stuck with you? Or was it a light bulb moment at the end? So let's dive into those 13, um, to that part of the journey, not 13 specific treatment centers, but let's talk about that part of it because that's a journey right there. And I wanna go a little further into that. And was there ever a time where you're like, look, this is, this is treatment center number seven. I'm 22 or I'm 23 or I'm 24. Now I'm on treatment center number 10. Was there ever a time you said, look, this isn't going to work? And did you feel defeated? And where did the courage come from to keep going? And I know I've asked you five, ten questions in one here, but as I'm talking, I'm also recognizing of how how much of a badass you are to even be here right now sharing your story with us. Cause that's not part of my story, but I can imagine going to 13 treatment centers and seeing your friends do their own thing and, and not feeling like a normal person. And you're saying, you probably ask yourself, why can't I be a normal drinker? So let's dive into this a little bit more. And Sophie's face is, she's looking at me like Paul, you just asked me now 12 questions there, but let's go to those 13 treatment centers and talk to us about, what that progression was like because it's a progression a lot of people think it's one and done they make the decision and it's done Um, but oftentimes it's accumulation of events and lessons learned and light bulb moments etc you on board sophie
1: yeah i'm wishing i had a pen and could have written down everything that i want to respond to in what you just said um i actually want to go back right to the beginning of what you were saying there and it was something about looking for the similarities and not the differences And I tell you what, I loved rehab. I felt right at home, which, you know, you might look back now and say maybe that was the problem. (laughs) But when I got to rehab, I met people who finally thought like I did. And you know what, that was so reassuring. And in rehab, it was before I'd been introduced to AA, which I, I do affiliate myself with now. But it was the first time I'd met people, you know, it didn't matter if they drank in park lane or on a park bench. We were all equal. And I'd always considered myself on the sideline uh, throughout life. You know, I wasn't one of the popular kids, but I wasn't unpopular either. I just had my few friends, and that was my lot in life. And actually, it was when I drank when I was at uni that I felt popular for the first time. And I got kudos for it. And when I went to rehab, I didn't need to feel popular or unpopular. We just were able to exist together and understand each other. I know that sounds really corny, but... The immense amount of peace that I got from that and reassurance that I wasn't crazy, that people knew what it was like for the black mist to come down and to not be able to have an answer for why you were doing what you were doing. We were all as equally as confused as each other. It's, it was phenomenal. So to try and answer your question as to why I needed to go to 13 of these treatment centres, as I said, I was very comfortable in an institution. I liked school. I liked rules. I like authority figures. Um, Not your classic alcoholic, or who you might imagine. So the environment was suited to me. But I think where it didn't work the first few treatment centres was I treated it like an academic exercise. Again, all this in hindsight. I like to get good grades. So I could read you the big book. I could take any of the groups. I could quote verbatim what the counsellor said yesterday. I couldn't do any of that now. Because, and this is a really cheesy phrase... (laughs) You know, it's the longest distance between your head and your heart. I had it all in my head, and I didn't even know what it was to feel like an alcoholic, truly and deeply know what I was. So every time I left each one of those treatment centers, within two weeks, without fail, I was walking into a corner store and buying another liter of vodka. And I couldn't tell you why, because I was such a good student. And I was as confused as everybody else, because... I was willing to put my hands up and say I was an alcoholic, and yet I wasn't being fixed. I love that
0: line, how you said the longest distance is from the head to the heart. And I want to talk to you about what you just said, is you can't think yourself out of this problem. It's one of the biggest paradoxes of all time when it comes to recovery. And academically, you, you did well, and you were checking all the boxes. And on me personally, I read countless quit lip books, literature of how to quit um, cover to cover and I filled my head with knowledge and that's a normal trajectory that we do and we encounter any problem is life We go to YouTube we go to the bookstore go to Amazon and we start reading up we go to dr. Google we start doing information Investigating what the problem is and for every other problem. Let me think on this um, For the most part every other problem that I encountered in life that strategy that sequence of steps worked Right find uh, find out more information follow the steps boom problem solved but with this one it was different And What I know now, it was a problem of connecting the heart and soul. So it's a little more complicated than that. But I'm curious to hear your input on what it means that you can't think yourself out of this problem.
1: Okay. Well, this is the part that I always wish that I could just write a manual on it and hand it to anyone that's struggling with alcohol. And I find it really unsatisfactory when I say this part of my story because I want to be able to just touch someone and give them the gift of recovery. But for me... I came out of that 13th rehab. I'd had seven months in that treatment centre, relapsed, was hospitalised. I was living uh, in some accommodation where they'd kick me out if they knew that I'd been drinking, so I told them I had gastroenteritis. It sounded complicated enough to be true. And I was sobbing. I was sobbing and sobbing on my bed. And you know, by that point, I had no emotions. I'd drunk them all away. I was numb. So to actually be crying was really unusual. These were body-wracking sobs. And I'd been on the phone to my eldest sister, apologizing, not so much for what I'd done or for how I behaved, but quite literally for what I was, for existing, um, for bringing all this on my family. Because, you know, I didn't give a damn about myself, but the bit that cut through all that numbness was when my family would look me in my eyes and be like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to us? why you got our attention what more do you want and I couldn't answer them so I'd I'd finished that phone call with my older sister and the second one called and she's like right I'm getting a flight in from the Caribbean if you meet me at the airport I'll take you back to rehab and for the first time ever I said no I don't know where that came from but I think I realized there was nothing more rehab could teach me you said earlier I think you know had I taken anything away from my Learned all the tools. I just hadn't known how to pick them up. So I said, no, there's, there's nothing more that a rehab can teach me. And he said, what are you going to do? I thought, and <laughs> literally I said, I don't know. And so we hung up and crying, crying, crying. And then what happened next was really hard to put into words, but it felt like something inside me snapped. And the next breath I took was just peace. And I knew it was over and that that you know there weren't thunderbolts and lightning but that for me was my spiritual awakening and i never i never picked up another drink from that from that little moment and you know i was absolutely mental for weeks after that i i didn't go through a detox so i had severe delirium tremens tremens but i would get in my car and drive somewhat shakily down to aa i'd been introduced to aa by that point And I'd go to two, sometimes three meetings a day because I was unemployed, unemployable. I had had nowhere else to turn to, but actually what I found was this immense cocoon where I was able to just focus on myself and sort of in the safe arms of other people who had exactly the same problems as me. That's what I love about it. They're not experts. They're just normal people. And... Yeah, I just spent three years doing that, essentially, until I was ready to take another step into the outside world and see what I was capable of.
0: Sophie, so it sounds like after your 13th treatment center, your sister was ready to come back from the Caribbean and take you to your 14th treatment center. And you said, no, I've learned academically, philosophically, conceptually, everything that there is to teach me about how to depart from alcoholism or this... this Or the spiritual malady or however you want to call it and it sounds like you stopped worrying about the how And the why and listeners you you guys have heard me say a lot about this recently on the podcast Is don't worry about the how because it's actually not your job to figure out the how to quit drinking But it is your job to clearly define the why Now with a spiritual awakening what it sounds like you most definitely had an addiction is one of the best ways to to promote an opening an awakening of sorts because we go under such intense pressure it's similar to how a rock turns into a crystal and becomes transparent if i understand correctly the carbon molecules in the earth go are under such pressure in the earth that it it actually awakens and that's what i've read in some books and the same thing can happen with a human brain yeah it can actually snap something will distance itself and what what i've read and, and a lot of the eckhart tolle stuff he talks about is we take one step back, it says, who is suffering? It's when we finally detach and say, I'm done suffering. And then internally, there's a gap that's created. It says, I, wait a second, who's I? And all this happens in like a nanosecond, you just split. And there's a fracture in the mind where you, di- you separate, you take one step away from your addiction, one step away from you, and one step closer to your true self, which never was the addiction in the first place, which is difficult to academically, to learn this stuff, in fact you can't. And talk to us about what it was like, so those three and a half years, you were still in that community of support. What, what, what lessons did you learn during those years? And then talk to us about the, the two years after that.
1: So that first three years, I had a, such a basic job. Uh, I think I was just scanning paper, <laughs> literally. Um, and that was absolutely perfect because it kept me occupied from nine to five as I said, I went nuts on my own. And I was able to, and this sounds very self-conceited, but I was able to think about myself a lot and sort of reflect back on what I'd been told in all those rehabs. And then what I was newly being told in AA and what I was learning really was how to deal with the highs and lows, which in early recovery came thick and fast. One day I'd be up, one day I'd be down and it felt like there was no way out. I don't, personally believe I suffer from depression in the classic sense of the word but I do get what I like to call black dog so when the black dog comes to visit I don't know how long it's going to be but one of my favorite phrases that I came to love was this too shall pass and you know that's not just for the bad stuff that's also for the good stuff and remembering that phrase has actually reminded me to savour when it's really good because I know that won't last but It's always worth remembering to get you through the troughs. Um, What I also learned in those first three years through the community of AA that I was in was that I wasn't such a bad person if these people could put up with me. They taught me how to socialize without a drink and have proper belly laughs. Like you know how satisfying that is to really, really laugh when you're not fueled by alcohol and it's not at someone else's expense. Um, When it's just being silly for the sake of it. And we do stupid activities like go bowling or dancing or stuff that I probably would have looked down my nose at thinking I was too good for when I was drinking. And then almost like going back to childhood, realizing just how fun all that stuff is. Really, really simple. And also during that time, I learned how to make things right with my family in a way that felt good for me and felt good for them. Um, and it was different for every single member. I think the biggest thing that I started to learn, and this is an ongoing process, because I, I certainly haven't grasped it quickly, but it's that I don't need to keep punishing myself. But as I said, that's an ongoing process.
0: Before we hit the record button, Sophie talked about how she was experiencing some self-loathing these last couple of days and you've heard me say on this podcast that self-loathing is something we must address on this journey and it's not a one or done thing, right? It's an ongoing process, even for me included. And what was that like for you and how do you address self-loathing? Because I know a, li- a lot of listeners right now, they're like, preach on, I, 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 I hate myself at this moment, right? I feel like everybody who grapples with addiction reaches that moment where they don't, they don't like themselves or they even hate themselves. And I even look at my addiction as a gift right now because I've never loved myself more. And I don't even want to say that I love myself because that, that almost means the pendulum has swung far enough to one side. I just never have loved myself more than I have at this moment because it can always go further, which is a beautiful part of this journey. But what does that look like for you?
1: You know what? I wish I was where you are right now. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, I'm certainly at the place where I accept myself most of the time. And I think one of the most important things someone ever told me was, you know, would you talk to a friend like that? Um, and I would never, ever talk to a friend the way I talk to myself. And that's a really really good perspective giver, I think. Currently, I mean, to even call it self-loathing is so dramatic. It's And it's always about such small things that I catastrophize way out of proportion. So the current thing was I'm an intern here and I had some good feedback. So therefore, I think, oh, my behavior needs to be perfect because otherwise... All these people who have given me positive feedback are gonna turn around and go, oh, that's what she's really like. So when I made like what is literally a tiny mistake that I wouldn't even think twice if someone else did, I then catastrophize it and think, are oh, they gonna kick me out? For sure, for sure. They're gonna realize what a horrible person I am. And it's just, it's just not true. <laughs> it's completely out of proportion. So that's an ongoing process, learning how to treat myself like I treat other people. And try try and be kinder try and do more things for myself as well
0: And Sophie let's comment on your last four weeks here at Hope Rehab what it's like What do you think it's like for the clients would you have attended treatment here? What kind of treatment facility is? Uh, it is or what kind of teachings is it? 12-step based holistic based talk to us a little bit about your experience here
1: for me walking into Hope Rehab five years sober it felt like Life went from grey to technicolor. It is such a warm and fun environment, um, which is very, very different to some of the more austere rehabs that I went to. And I don't don't want to say that that's just an English rehab thing, but I certainly went to some rehabs that were very, very strict. Like no, obviously no alcohol, but no caffeine, no white sugar, no white flour. Uh, Some might say no fun (laughs) and hope is very very different to that which at first I wasn't sure if this was really going to work you know it's not my experience but I think at the forefront of everything which you might might not find in the handbook when you come to hope but they're teaching you how to enjoy life sober Um, and to do that there's a big big emphasis on exercise so I'll get the clients up and we exercise before breakfast, Uh, I think the phrase here is get up before your addiction does. Um, And then there'll be more activities in the afternoon and then in the morning they'll do some therapeutic groups. And basically you're handed absolutely everything from serious lectures to Zumba classes to trips out, out of the site. We went to the beach yesterday, they can go shopping. There's more of a bridge to sober living and real life Then perhaps other rehabs might offer so I would definitely say I would have liked to have attended Hope I think it was being born at the time I got sober
0: And Sophie being here, we're almost like in the jungle in Thailand here I've heard a lot of exotic birds as well as laughter And I loved how you said that they're showing you how to have fun without alcohol fun without drugs And they do a fantastic job with that There's a lot of mindfulness. There's meditation morning every morning. There's gratitude it's a, it's a very holistic-based approach from what I've seen. Um, they do have some 12-step 12, some 12 teachings as well. And so, if you want to talk to you more about your journey at five and a half years away from alcohol. What's next for you? What do you feel like you're working on right now?
1: You know what, I really don't know what's in store for me, and that's sort of how I found myself in Asia. At about four and a half years sober, I was working as a personal assistant in the finance industry in London. And I got a pretty bright outlook on life, but life was just a bit like walking through treacle every day. So I had a 4 a.m. light bulb moment about a year and a bit ago. And I just realized, you know, flip it, I didn't get sober for this. And I had no, absolutely no idea what I, what I did get sober for at all. But in that moment, I knew I had to quit my job, and, which was absolutely terrifying. But actually, that was the hardest part, making the decision. And quitting the job and then I started traveling for the last 10 months and in that time found hope and what I really wanted to do was predominantly give back having been to all those rehabs myself but as a secondary goal actually find out what it's like to be on the other side of the curtain really and just find out if there's a space for me either in counseling or as support staff um, and just get to get to know a bit more. About what's on offer, really, because I, I didn't know growing up that people could be these, these wonderful people.
0: A lot to unpack there, Sophie. Number one, life is possible after alcohol. You've been traveling for eleven months, so not only can you have fun with that alcohol, you can go out on the road and travel the world. Number two, you said I'm not really sure what I got sober for, but I didn't get sober for this. That is another example of the whole journey is with alcohol. We realize we might not necessarily definitively find out who we are when we quit drinking, but we're definitely going to find out who we're not. So I love how that was another example of that. And Sophie, before we hit the rapid fire round, I want to
1: ask you one more question. What are your thoughts on relapse? Well, um, as I've already detailed in my story, uh, I've got quite a lot of experience of relapse and feeling pretty crushed and confused by it. But one thing I had to keep telling myself was everything that I'd learned in the periods of sobriety before that, whether it had been a few days or a few months, it was all experience and proof that I could live sober. And there were always moments in that conversations that you'd had, light bulbs, even little ones, that I could reflect back on and take forwards into my next stint of sobriety. And when you start to accumulate little experiences like that and add them all together, it becomes a life. And it becomes a way of life. And you just need to keep learning and having little accomplishments um, until you can feel confident in saying, this is what I do now.
0: And Sophie, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yeah. (laughs) She's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) You should have seen her face on that one. All right, here we go. Number one, what is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you?
1: Oh, I don't know why but a really cheesy one just sprung to mind and that was going on holiday with my family again for the first time sober and them not worrying if I'd smuggled duty free, that I wasn't getting drinks at the bar, trusting me to look after their kids, um, leaving me alone in the apartment. I mean, so many firsts that just never, never would have happened before and be given trust again. To be trusted again in sobriety is so amazing.
0: Next question, what's your favorite alcohol-free drink?
1: Hard to narrow it down, but anything sour. You get so many sweet or creamy drinks, so like a fojito or something, um, but as sour as they come.
0: It's five and a half years away from alcohol. What are some of your favorite resources?
1: Uh, It's easily got to be other people. I mean, if you can just open your mouth and talk to someone... Particularly other people in recovery and they say, you know, about the craziest thing you've ever done and they turn around and go, yeah, me too. Uh, it's It just totally deflates any cravings or worries or anxieties.
0: Now, what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life, Sophie?
1: Well, I'm living it now. Um, I'm bombing around the world and seeing as much of it as I can but I keep adding to that bucket list, just seeing new countries, meeting new people, and actually getting to know people in recovery in other countries is absolutely incredible.
0: Sophie, I gotta think back in the vault on that one. I'm living my bucket list right now. Listeners, you're gonna hear this right now. We're doing a high five in the air. I think we both might be doing it. It's been a bucket list for me to do Recovery Elevator on the road, to podcast abroad. We're doing an interview in person in Thailand, looking at my calendar right now, Eight days before 28 sobriety rock stars show up in Thailand for a recovery elevator Asia adventure trip, the 12 day sober travel trip. So, wow, good stuff. That was a great answer, Sophie. And last question What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners, Sophie?
1: Stay connected, easily, actually. Stay connected. Um, The most dangerous place an alcoholic can be is isolated. Um, Because at those times, your own head is not your friend. Um, so find other people that you feel safe opening up to. Find other alcoholics or people who think they might have a problem with drinking. Um, and talk about it. It's easily the best thing you can do.
0: And before we depart, Sophie, give listeners your own customizer. You might need to ditch the booze if line.
1: Uh, For me, I always say the first red flag I noticed was when I started drinking secretly. When I don't want to tell people that I've had two shots instead of one, when I'm having a glass of wine getting ready, and I know my friends haven't had that. You know, really check yourself. If you're just trying to sneak away a little bit more alcohol than everybody else and think you're getting away with it, I'd say that's a massive red flag.
0: Sophie, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. You crushed it. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you very much. Taking a step backward after taking a step forward isn't a disaster. It's more like a cha-cha. You can't always choose the music life plays for us, but we can choose how we dance to it. They call it life. I call it a dance. Guys, life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Life is the dancer or you are the dance. Hold me closer, tiny dancer. Yeah, I think we can put that one in there. I always knew that in another life I could fly, which is why in this life I dance. Guys, do me a favor and dance before the song ends. You guys, this whole thing is a dance. All of it. And unfortunately, the DJ is going to ignore the bulk of your music requests, so let's just get ahead and start dancing right about now. Recovery elevator You took the elevator down. You gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this. I love you guys.